is never the underdog. Yes, sir. Sir. Yes, sir. Never the underdog. Yes, sir. What's up, Duke fans? Welcome to the Devil's Den podcast. I'm your host, Josh Smith, joined by my co-host, Raul. Got a special guest joining us today. Got Dan Favalli, a national NBA staff writer for Bleacher Report, editor at NBAMath.com, co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast. So we figured we'd bring him on as the playoffs are going. Uh, do a kind of a global take here of some of the Duke guys out there in the league. Um, personally, I was just talking to these guys offline, been a big fan of Dan for a while now, um, been following his podcast for several years. So y'all go check that out. Obviously he's on Twitter too. We'll plug all that stuff here in a little bit. Um, Dan, let me let you get it to you for just a second to introduce yourself and then Raul, I'll let you kind of take it with our first question here. Yeah, I don't know that I could add anything. Thank you for the kind words. And thank you if you both are listening to us ramble at Hardwood Knox. Uh, genuinely uh, appreciate it. But yeah, just nothing to add. Co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast and excited to be here to talk about some of these Duke alums. There we go. Yeah, I think we should get started with Jason Tatum because he's kind of Duke's most successful alum maybe ever, or at least at the current moment he is. Um you know, I guess you could argue historically Grant Hill or Kyrie Irving or something, but Tatum this year finished a fourth in MVP voting from what I saw. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about that. What did you think of that result? Was that where you had him? And you don't have to humor us if you had him lower. I was just curious. <laughs> did you actually uh, have a ballot or did you just do your own kind of personal ballot? God, no. If they gave me a ballot, uh, you would know about it because I would be insufferably um, writing about it. Uh, but I did have him lower. I had him fifth i think he was in my top five um i think i just flip-flopped him and shay and so i had shay right. fourth he had like his season was really good there's no like great reason to be like oh he shouldn't have been fourth i just it kind of fell under the radar and maybe it didn't for you guys obviously but he was one of the least efficient off the dribble jump shooters in the nba yeah what happened to that i don't i mean he's been killing it in the playoffs like they're going in now so it's not something that he can't do anymore but he had the same effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers as Killian Hayes, which is, mm. if anyone's watching <laughs> Killian Hayes, it's a little bit of a problem. Um, and I thought, you know, we're going to get into like improvements he's made, which is just the clearest one is getting to the foul line and drawing fouls. But to have that part of his game just improve, and then you all of a sudden pull all the way back on what was probably outside of his ability to to move off the ball and hit catch and shoot threes. That was just like the best thing about Jay. And it is the most valuable part of Jason Tatum is those sidestep, the mm -hmm. like off the dribble threes. Yep. And those just were not falling this season for, I, you know, defense is more keyed in on, I'm sure, but there were shots that you just grew to expect him to make that he was just missing this year. Was there like a difference in volume of pull-up shots he was taking or anything like that? Or was that about the same? Um, so this year he attempted, I'm sure, I feel like he probably attempted more off the dribble threes just because that's the nature, but, uh, I don't think there was a major difference in volume looking at it right now. And he was at, uh, this season 4.8 pull up three point attempts per game. So no, it was not like this dramatic right. increase over last year. Cause his shot volume, I think did go up a little bit, but a lot of that was probably other stuff like, um, you know, like you said, he was getting the foul line more and stuff like that. So you know, that probably led to his increase in scoring more than anything else. Um, he actually but, took fewer off the dribble threes and off the dribble jumpers this year than he did last really? year. Wow. And so that's wild. Yeah, maybe yeah. he needs to hike it up then to get that efficiency back. He needs high volume or something. Hey, the playoffs, proof of concept. There you go. You yep. called it. <laughs> yeah. 
you mentioned his improvements. Um, anything else that you've seen him improve upon? It doesn't have to be like this year, but just kind of over the years, maybe over the last couple. You know, we talk a lot about incremental improvement, and I think he's made it as a passer. And there's still some of that mentality where I don't even know that I would call it tunnel vision, but it's just like bailing out on his drives that I still see from him. But he just has a better feel where if you need him to slow things down and even make passes that are outside of drives, where it's just like he actually needs to orchestrate the offense, he can do that more than he could have, like, you know, rewind three years ago or whatever. And the other thing I would just reemphasize is, and I would just need to look at the numbers on this, he has to be the best at drawing shooting fouls on like on jumpers like has to be Mm -hmm. among like one of the better players at doing that because for someone who got to the room a little bit more this year and that's something you would like he like he has you look at his length and his size and even his strength now like he can get and his his speed he can get to the rim more he just he bails out a lot but he's still just getting to the free throw line a ton and so that was a huge aspect of his game he was actually at i was looking before he averaged basically the same amount of drives per game this year i think it might have even been a little bit less but he scored more points off those drives because he was just so good at getting to the foul line. I think he deviates one from that part of his game a little bit. And I also think he might leave some, I'm not saying he needs to be, you know, um, a la James Harden, where it's like, he's going to draw a ton of perimeter threat fouls by throwing his body into everyone. But I almost feel like he leaves some of that on the table by not following through on his drives enough to where there'll be more contact around the rim. Or even if you look at some of the angles and takeoff points on his layups, they're like Jordan pool esque kind of absurd. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Dan, what's it you a few years ago? Um, and it might have been Danny LaRue when I was listening to it, the Dan thing, maybe he was confusing me. But you were making an argument, though, talking about analytical conversation about there was still a value in having a guy kind of like Tatum take the shots that you don't really want anyone to take. Like someone has to take these shots, these mid range jumpers, these like slow shot clocks. And for a while, early in his career, he had that kind of Kobe in him, you know, that kind of like, oh, dude, like maybe let's not take some of these fadeaways. Let's try to get to the rim. Have you seen anything like to suggest like that's always just going to be in his bag? Because we've kind of gotten to the point where like the mid range is coming back. But like unless you're Kawhi, we really don't really want you to take that many of them. But where do you see that evolution for him? Because it doesn't seem like to me he can just be one of these like three or rim guys. Like that midi is always just going to have to be somewhat present in his game. Do you think that will hold him back at all? Or where do you see that going? No, I don't think it'll hold him back because as someone who is going to have the ball in his hands a lot and um, what you're describing seems way too smart to have been my take. So it was probably <laughs> Danny LaRue's. Uh, I, when you're self-creating, you're not really harshing the spacing by taking those mid-range jumpers. If you're hitting them at a high clip, you know, if you're Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, just take them. I don't care. But if you're just someone who can get to the spot, it's late in the shot clock, take them. I think we've seen what I think everyone's biggest issue probably was, is he's taking these like really junky, long mid-rangers early in the shot clock. That just didn't happen this year. Yeah. Like the super long twos accounted for 8% of his shots. That's the lowest mark of his career. And we've seen him gradually cut down on those and so if anything i think it's good to have that as a safety valve and like if you're going against drop or if you're going against defenses that are just going to allow that it's good to have it in your arsenal um so i don't actually think it's going to hold them back at all i think scoring at every level is super important and that i would probably have more of an issue where it feels like we were just talking about before if he's taking off prematurely to like it looks like he's attacking the room but he's not really or he's just bailing out on drives that he could stand to to follow through on, but I don't think, you know, maybe three, it felt like that conversation lasted longer than it needed to. Like if we go back three years, mm-hmm. maybe even two plus, like the past two seasons specifically, it just, to me, and like maybe even going back to, yeah, it's always been two. What's interesting is that those shots account for such a small share 
of his <laughs> shot attempts that like it, it was probably overblown in the first place. But I think he's definitely trimmed a lot of the the fat, so to speak, from his from his shot diet. For sure. And uh, you know, of course, he's got a new coach this year. Um, I was wondering what you thought about that because it seems like Missoula is a little more offensively oriented than Udoka was. You know, and it, uh, you know, of course, for the first part of the season, Robert Williams is out, so you have better spacing because you have Tatum at the four. I don't know if you thought that helped him at all or just improvements in the offense. Yeah, I'm sure. I do think the better spacing helps. I can't even remember who was the first to point it out. It might, I can't. I think it might have been like someone on Zach Lowe's podcast, maybe it was Zach Lowe himself. That really made me think. Um, and so that definitely could have impacted him. But also, I was reading something where like um, Missoula was doing like these joint offensive film sessions with Tatum and Jalen Brown. And so as you just mentioned, him being more offensive focused, I'm wondering if that just had anything to do with maybe how we saw Tatum grow as this offensive player, at least as a, let's say a decision maker on drives or ability to get to the foul line a little bit more. Um, but that's really interesting. I never really thought about how the new coach might've impacted him a ton because if anything, I view the Celtics as like proof that yeah, coaching matters, but just right. like they went to the finals last year <laughs> and then their, their coach gets suspended, fired, whatever. They have this new coach who I'm sure is fine, but like, they're still like one of the three best teams in the league yeah. again. And that's a testament to the talent to me that they have on the roster more than anything. Right. Yeah. And, uh, just the kind of overall balance, I think too, like whether or not Missoula is a better offensive coach than defensive, when you have that kind of defensive personnel that they do, you know, it's hard to feel the bad defense. People were talking about them early in the year. Why is their defense 28th? And I was like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Just give it, <laughs> give it a few weeks. Yeah. And it turned before everyone cited like RW three is like a turning point. I was like, no, it turned around like way right. before that it was. And the other thing that I think just helped everybody is Derek white going thermonuclear oh, yeah. like the entire season on both ends of the floor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was arguably their third best player, I would say. Yeah, what would even be, who's like the, is it Brogdon? Like, who would be the other candidate? I'm just trying to Probably think. Probably Brogdon, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even, I mean, in the last few games, I mean, Smart's been playing well, but that's just kind of the guy that Smart is. But, um, I, Dan, I guess the kind of million-dollar question here, and like last, I guess that was last summer, last year, we had Ben Gallover on, and he was talking about it a little bit, too. Can Tatum be the best player on a title team? Like, do you see that, like, hey, this guy can get there, this guy can do, or what needs to happen for you to feel confident of, like, yeah, this guy can carry maybe multiple title teams? I think he's just there. Like, there's still, he might be more imperfect than like a, or not as overwhelmingly dominant in one or two areas as like a Steph is, or definitely is just like purely dominant as LeBron and Giannis are at their peaks. But like he just was the best player on a Celtics team that came within two victories of winning the title. They're still yeah. alive in this year. They might come out of the Eastern Conference again. And it helps that like not only does he have an actual co-star, but there's real depth to the, you know, when you go seven, eight, nine guys deep, even if you don't really love the idea of Sam Hauser or or Grant Williams, like the fact that you just have those guys is huge for them. So there are benefits there. And maybe if the Celtics were shallower, would there would Tatum be as, you know, equipped to carry a team as let's say like a Giannis or like a peak LeBron? I don't know, but he's He's there to me. I mean, like, it's just, he'll he'll never be, I guess, on the level it feels like anyway. I mean, he's still, what is he, 19 still? Yeah, so he might, exactly. he might get there. <laughs> but, like, he won't be ever as overwhelmingly dominant across the board where it feels so automatic. Like, in comparison to Kevin Durant, um, whatever is happening in the playoffs against the Nuggets notwithstanding, there's just not, despite the shots that Kevin Durant takes, there's not a lot of variability 
by and large to his performance. Tatum is more of that seesaw. And so that was right. caked in yeah. the Kobe experience. And look what Kobe was able to do in the NBA. And so I have, and Jason Tatum has looked to me probably like, maybe not as an on-ball defender of points, but he's better than Kobe was defensively. If we're just going to be like super honest there, maybe not so much this season that felt like he might've slipped a little bit. But so I do think he can be the best player on a, on a title team. And really, I, and I guess I already mentioned this, like they were there last year, like they were within two victories. And so to think that he couldn't be, is just like, to me, feels a little bit bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would have liked to see him take that shot the other night though. He made the pass to Brogdon and then Brogdon kind of threw it back out to, for the steal. It's like, you got to take that one, bro. But, yeah, yeah. That was, um, I, I don't even understand that entire possession. That Boston was, standpoint. yeah, that was bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They tend to bog down at the end of the games. So can we quote you on that? Uh, Jason Tatum better than Kobe. Yeah. For Valley. <laughs> you know, look, yeah, go ahead. Just because, like, I've been notoriously lower on Kobe than I think right. 99.9% of the people. So, yeah, I think by there, I'll just people go to count the rings. But, yeah, I'll be prepared to say that Tatum is just better than Kobe. You can quote yeah. me on that. Okay. Well, I love that. Well, you did mention, uh, you mentioned co stars. So, the whole Jalen Brown situation is up in the air. So, hypothetically speaking, if the Celtics were to trade Brown or if he were to walk away during free agency or whatever happened, obviously they're not going to let him go for free. But, who would be like your dream co-star for Jason Tatum? Ooh, ooh. Um, yeah, I kind of feel like it would be sort of a D Damian Lillard, Steph Curry type. So Damian Lillard or Steph Curry, because there are two of those players. Um, someone <laughs> that is more equipped to handle the primary ball handling and playmaking responsibilities. I mean, maybe even you could just say Jokic too would be like perfect. But I like right. the idea of like having that other outside in conventional attacker or someone's going to jack a ton of perimeter and then i would be very interested to see what does that one open up for jason tatum's rim pressure two and like do we see more of jason tatum just as a screener because it kind of just hits different if he gets to screen for steph or dame as opposed to jalen brown or marcus smarter or Derek white uh so i think one of those two players would be interesting and one of those two players might actually be available this summer just right saying. right right mm. yeah not Jokic. <laughs> no, not yet. If he is, something has gone terribly wrong in Denver. Yeah, Denver just going to trade uh, for Jalen Brown. Yeah. Straight um, up. Yeah, exactly. I guess we should uh, move on because we're not going to make this a Tatum podcast solely. But uh, the next guy I kind of want to talk about is Paolo. Um, so obviously he wins Rookie of the Year. Was he your Rookie of the Year? Yes, me and my podcast co-host got into a a heated discussion that turned even more heated among Orlando Magic fans when I posted the clip. I thought. My co-host Grant, I love him. I love him. I thought he made a compelling argument for Jalen Williams, so I posted it. He caught so much <laughs> BS on Twitter. I felt so bad. There were people from like websites that had huge followings that were just dunking all over him, and I started to feel like crap. Grant's <laughs> just not online at all, so he didn't notice any of it. So I felt bad for like 72 hours. He was like, oh yeah, I saw like two comments, and it was fine. Don't worry about it. But I had Palo pretty comfortably. Yeah, I, I actually did hear that podcast. Um even as you know, a Palo supporter, I understood Grant's point. Um, Palo definitely needs to find a way to improve his efficiency on jump shots from what I saw. Now, he is good at getting to the line, so I don't know if you just want to give your impressions of his season kind of just generally. Yeah, so the, you mentioned him getting to the line. I was, and this is someone who gets into the draft like um, six weeks or so before it, so I knew what he could do, but I was just floored by his ability to get to the foul line. He had... There are 51 players, I think, that averaged at least 10 drives per game this season. And he was second in foul percentage on those things as a rookie. And we're talking about going through the entire season like that. 
And the combination that of like force and finesse once he gets into the lane where it's, yeah, you want dudes to bounce off his shoulder or him to muscle his way to baskets, but he's also going to uh, throw up some of these finesse looks that are going to go into just that combination of force and touch is incredible. And I think, look, the jumper is going to be big, but he can get to some of his spots inside the arc. And we saw him, I think over his last like 14 or 15 games, Late season, I know, very small sample, but like he shot almost 40% from three on higher volume than Jalen Williams, just in case Grant's listening to this. <laughs> um, and so I think when you look at the jumper form too, I'm just convinced it's going to be there. Maybe he's, maybe he's not going to be someone who can, like Jason Tatum, take those quick fire looks. Uh, I would argue with his girth, he probably shouldn't be that player anyway. Um, only Kenny Lofton Jr. can really do that, I think. <laughs> but um, I don't, I like have high hopes for his jumper. And the other thing that really impressed me about him, I, I just thought he was supposed to be really bad defensively because rookies are inherently really bad defensively. And his MO was just, that was part of the reason he wasn't considered the number one pick for so long. even though the Orlando magic were clearly lying to everyone was just that, Oh, like look at what Jabari Smith jr. Can do on defense um, and his switchability. Look what Chet home is going to be able to do as a rim protector um, and can play like the four or the five there. He was able to switch, hold up in some one-on-one -on -one situations, not a conventional rim protector, but he did like kind of swap more shots than I expected. I don't think he's going to be this like huge defensive force, but I I've been trying to think of like an apt comparison for what he could be. And it's like, if his worst case outcome is 90% of a bigger Grant Williams on defense, I'll take it. That dude's probably going to win a couple MVP awards given what he's able to do on offense. Yeah, And especially since Orlando wants to start him at the two. Right. So if you yeah, have exactly. that level of shot might be at the, the one two. now. Who are they projected to take in the draft? Yeah. <laughs> that actually does raise the question of what you think of the kind of fit of the roster there. Obviously, they're playing pretty unconventional, and some of that's by necessity. Um, you know, they had a lot of injuries early in the year. You know, their backcourt is maybe not the strongest. But what do you think of that three, four, five with uh Wagner um Boncaro and Wendell Carter. Is that too kind of cramped of a front court? Should they get somebody who can space a little bit better than Carter in there, maybe? If they're going to go down this path that they currently have with their backcourt, where it's going to be Markel Fultz plus, is it Cole Anthony or Gary Harris or Jalen Suggs, who I'm still just a big believer in? Yeah. Um, yes, they're going to need to do something up front, I think, because then you're going to put too much pressure on Paolo to be among your primary floor spacers. And that's not what he should do. I do think Wendell Carter Jr. We've seen is capable of spacing the floor, but is he going to be like Al Horford esque from there through and through? Probably not. I would probably though, just because the name's Wagner and I love Wendell Carter Jr. I think he's like, that is someone who still has all-star stock. And I'm not sure enough people watching the NBA at least realize it. Um, and then with Paolo, I love actually that combination, especially it had some really nice defensive moments. I'd rather see the changes come in the backcourt. And that's hard to pinpoint because I, I thought Markel Fultz had a strong season and I've been notoriously down on Markel Fultz. And it's been cool to see him find his sort of offensive way as this game manager, someone who does have a little bit of a mid-range game. Um, he can use all these different changes and speeds and like body fakes. Um, but I do think if you want to keep the front court you have, if you're not going to, you know, if you don't want to change up what's happening at center with Wendell Carter Jr., then you need to change up things that are happening in the backcourt. I think Markel Fultz will be the place to to start in theory because you do have, as of right now anyway, okay, well, like the idea of Gary Harris, or if you want to play Cole Anthony, then maybe you look at it too. Or if you're going to play Jalen Suggs and you trust what you saw from his catch and shoot three this year, you're going to gravitate towards the other guard spot. 
the change would need to happen, I would think, in the backcourt, because I think one of the things that's going to unlock Paolo is better spacing from Orlando. He was a pretty good playmaker, not mm -hmm. A++, but if you want him to be the guy who is actually driving your offense, even at a level higher than just because we mentioned Jason Tatum, where he's still more of like Marcus Smart and Malcolm Brogdon are going to drive that offense, the playmaking of it more than Tatum. If you want Paolo Bancaro to be even like driving your offense more than a Kevin Durant did for for brooklyn or for golden state or what he's doing in phoenix if you want them to get that devin booker level i should really say as a playmaker um you're gonna need to put better spacing around him somewhere and i would personally rather see it come from the backcourt but if you don't think it should then i agree with you guys like it's probably gonna have to be wcj hmm. speaking of wendell carter um it seemed like he kind of had an up and down season this year last year i thought he was really really good how would you compare this season to last season yeah, there was, I don't know what, in, can't remember what injury he was dealing with, but his season felt a little stop and start. And right. then I do think the element of having less agency over the offense because of how Franz Wagner has grown, how Fultz has grown. You were then injecting Paolo Bancaro into the equation. It took him a little bit to, to find his way. I'd like to see more two-man stuff between him and Paolo. But again, you, you need to surround them with better spacing to, to make it work. And I think probably the most topsy-turvy part of his season was the shooting. Just like there were spurts pockets where he was super hot from the perimeter and then when he would go cold. And so that is something that you have to consider as you're fleshing out the, the rest of your roster. But him is just sort of like a secondary playmaking hub, someone who does his job on defense and like he can move around a, a lot in the half court defensively. Just he's he tantalizes me to no end. And maybe again, maybe I'm just living too much off of 21-22, but I don't think this season, at least for me, wasn't overwhelmingly discouraging. Hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, the jump shot thing is weird to me because I feel like he's always... Ha Josh, hasn't he always shot well from the free throw line? Yeah, yeah, even in college, I'm pretty sure he was... Like over 80%. A good stroke, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we've been waiting on him to become Al Horford, I feel like, for three years now, right? Like, I just keep waiting for this guy to be Horford 2.0, and it's... I think he's kind of got shafted a little bit and just kind of been bounced around. You know, he seems like a guy that if he happened to be on a team that made a deep run, he would be talked about in the same breath of like the Al Horford was a decade ago. Guys like PJ Tucker, I know they don't do the same things, but he just seems like he really hasn't been in a space to get showcased that way. I will say, though, if you're going to get like almost five three point attempts per 36 minutes on 35 plus percent shooting from deep from your center, that's just a, a big time win. I think it was just yeah. sort of because as Raul mentioned, like his, his season was very up and down offensively from, from at least my view. I think that kind of eclipsed the fact that, Hey, this was still somebody who was pretty impactful and he had to change his role up fairly significantly based off how the hierarchy changed offensively for Orlando. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, to your point, Josh, I remember there was rumors a few years ago that he was going to get traded to golden state. Oh, I know. Yeah. And I was, I was just yeah. salivating over that. The idea of him there, I think would be beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, they, wow. they, don't, they don't need him, obviously, because Looney's great and Draymond Green's great. What was that but, for? Was that like a Wiseman swap, a pick swap thing that they were talking about back then? Is that what that is that when that noise yeah, got going? Something yeah, with Chicago? Because like, they had a couple extra picks or they had had already drafted Wiseman. They were going to pack his and something yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Sucks for him, too. You know, geez. <laughs> Could have got the Golden State, but. His numbers are probably more inflated in Orlando than they would be in Golden State. Though. That's for true. Sure. That's true. True. He might be but, playing the Kaminga role in Golden State right now, for all we know, which is yeah. not the play role at all. Yeah. 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 Um, well, 
that's probably enough about uh Wendell Carter, you know, kind of a role player by um NBA standards, but uh somebody who is having a prominent role on a playoff team right now is RJ Barrett. My so guy Michael wanted, Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Josh is a big RJ Barrett fan and he's been a believer even when there seemed no reason to believe. So, but right now RJ is giving us that and true. Yeah. Um, last five games, he's like 23, 24 points a game, 53% shooting 37% from three. Um, is this just a hot streak or did he figure something out or did, uh, has Tibbs done anything kind of to unlock him? So it's, this is just like the RJ Barrett experience in a nutshell where he <laughs> plays so well for just long enough for you to think that he's turned a corner. And right now it's his decision-making on drives uh, in the playoffs, an assist rate of over nine on drive, shooting 52.5% on drives. I think that number's at like 64% since game three mm-hmm. of the first round. It does help that I think playing without Julius Randle a little bit during that stretch mm, yep. helped the spacing for him a little bit, but it's just, and now he's hitting his threes against Miami. At least he did in game two. You can't trust it. Like you just, you need to see it over an ex- like, I like more than a half season at this point because I've been burned by too many both positive and negative R.J. Barrett beliefs, and this just feels like the next chapter in <laughs> one of the most inconsistent books, uh, like of a player who already has a nine-figure extension about to kick in that I can just remember. So I. I want to believe he's turned a corner, and I do think this is the recipe. It's him attacking off drives, making good decisions, not getting tunnel vision. He threw a pass. I think it was in game two, and I think I can't remember who he threw it to. Was it Josh Harder? Was like shocked he threw it because like they're still they're still not used to it. And if he's going to be able to attack in space and then just get off those catch and shoot threes quickly and make them, that is like the best version of RJ Barrett. But he still, and he has made some of these recently to his credit. He still wants to be like the pull-up mid-range guy, the turnaround jumper guy. He even mentioned something in a press conference uh, coming out of the first round or during the first round where it's like, you know, those shots normally fall for me. And it was like, you (laughs) shot 32% or something on turnaround jumpers. If that's normally falling for you, if that's the the standard, we have real problems. Maybe he was talking about like normally like 10 years ago. (laughs) I don't don't know. Yeah. 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 What do you think about him defensively, Dan? How do you see that kind of panning out? Do you think that he can, that that's a strength? Do you see something that needs to be moved? Because it, it's hard to kind of figure out where he kind of fits. The Knicks tried to play him at point guard for a while there. So he's guarding more on ball. Now you have Brunson and these and Hart and these other guys. So he's moving more off ball. Is that where you like him or, or where do you see that kind of going? Because it seems like the defense is really what he's going to need to kind of stick this thing out through the shooting woes here. I actually like him more on ball because I think it forces him to become more engaged and defense was probably a strength for like the first or maybe the, the, you know, the second and third years of his career It's what made people love him. Even when he wasn't necessarily playing well offensively this year, there was like a dip, like the closeouts were lazy. The screen navigation was bad. Um, a lot, some of that's improved in the playoffs, but almost like you look at the screen navigation when he's really engaged, like if you're going to force him to at least be in actions, defending on the ball to where like he doesn't have to be because defense or offenses, excuse me, they're not going to routinely try and attack him because like you're either going to have Julius Randle on the court or Brunson on the court or maybe in Mitchell Robinson if you want to bring him out to space, which recently sure. hasn't been the best decision. So he's never going to be like, he'll just be away from the ball. And it feels like there are more lapses there this year for him anyway now. And so I like the idea of forcing him to just have to play every possession by being on ball. Um, I do think that comes with a trade-off offensively for him. 
overall, I would say he has been better for his career defensively than I would have expected. And so that's probably a strength when you're clinging to this idea of RJ Barrett still being a really impactful player. He's we've seen the offense. It's the offensive model is playing out right now. Can it sustain? We don't know, but it's also maintaining that effectiveness on the the defensive end. And you have someone who's just like, yeah, maybe he's never an all-star, but can he run these bench heavy units that found some success where it's RJ plus bench in the past? And then he's just giving you complimentary shooting and uh attacking and then just gonna be able to defend. Let's not even say advantage creators, but like the second best non like point guard on the roster of the other team there's a lot of value in that it's just all like ironically defense has probably been the most consistent part like positive part of his game since entering the league and it just this year it was not consistent enough by any measure do you think he's like that he factors into like the Knicks long-term plan do you see them like being invested in that or do you think that they're kind of going to lean more into like how do we maximize Randall or how do we maximize Brunson where do you see that going yeah, that's that's the decision for me. And it, it probably sounds ludicrous to frame it this way when Julius Randle might make All-NBA this year. I almost feel like it's not about trying to acquire the next star so much as that you're going to have to choose, unless you're getting a star and one of them is just organically moved, between Randle and RJ. Mm -hmm. Unless you're going to move RJ to the bench or really lean into RJ plus bench units, which just, as long as Tibbs there, don't really matter because Randle's going to play 37 minutes a game anyway. So you're talking about without Brunson and Randle, very limited sample size. I don't see a path to RJ Barrett specifically, given the structure of the offense now, being able to broaden his offensive horizons. Like he clearly wants to, when you look at some of the shots he takes and some of the comments he makes, there's just no clear path to doing that with Randall and Brunson both there. Now, if he can be, I mean, like even look at this stretch, like, you know, some of it came without Julius Randall. He misses game one of that second round series. But like, if he can be this version and he's content with it, then yes, I think he can factor in the Knicks' plans. But if I had to guess, he is more trade asset to them than actual peace. And that's actually a problem probably coming off of this. Like he needs to continue having a really strong playoffs. If you want him on his next deal to be viewed as this net positive asset in any perspective, trade negotiations, rather than just this distressed youngster that has the, the money to help you salary match for a, a bigger name guy. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, yeah. It's kind of a, tough fit i mean you've kind of alluded to it but uh having randall there rj and mitchell robinson so you've got a guy in the paint you've got randall who's not this like elite off-ball shooter and then you've got rj who just wants to finish at the rim all the time it just seems like they've got to get some spacing at that four or five spot maybe to maximize rj they might just need caps lock shooters because it's even with josh hart's had really good moments from beyond the arc but his volume is so limited and he's hesitant to shoot it and then even mm -hmm. Jalen brunson prefers like him and randall both prefer to work inside the arc really and yep. like you said if you're adding a non-floor spacing center which when you're playing for tibbs you're always basically gonna like even yep. hartenstein <laughs> like his range shrunk on offense this year under tibbs so um i yeah i don't know if there's I, I love when, when you're watching him now, it's like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. Like this team is going to continue to build from within. But the more I think about it and based off what we saw this season, I think it's probably more likely that he ends up being um, viewed more as a, a tool that helps them get someone who's not on the roster currently. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he'll end up back in Toronto. That would be kind of interesting to see what he could do in the, in the home city. They love there. their non-shooting six, seven, guys so there fit right in. yeah uh, him and siakam would be uh interesting <laughs> to say the least but uh <laughs> ro did you have anything else about rj you want me to jump into the next stuff here uh no that's about it i figure you know it's nice to see him playing well but like dan said 
we'll wait to see it for a full season before we get too excited. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, ironically, gonna... Utah would be a great spot for him right now with their spacing. Imagine our yeah. in Utah. I don't really know who the Knicks would want from Utah right now that they would be willing to trade, but that actually would be a great fit for him. <laughs> I think Will Hardy could really unlock something in him. You know, just seeing what he's done with some of these young guys, it's been really impressive. I know a lot of it is the spacing that's allowed Markinen to succeed. Um, but the fact that he's gotten the most out of like Walker Kessler and just some yeah. other kind of toss-off players. So it'd be interesting to see. I, I really respect him as a coach. I know it's just a one-year sample size, but even just looking at what he, you know, Colin Sexton when he played, his decision making was better. And then like Jordan Clarkson, I think had his best season as a playmaker. It's like we're talking about someone who's 30 years old or whatever. Just mm, yeah. there's a rookie head coach there. A lot of it I do think is the spacing, but regardless, uh, had they acquired Donovan Mitchell. You know, I don't know what we're talking about with RJ Barrett because then Larry Markin's not there, but this iteration of the Jazz specifically would be a great fit for RJ Barrett. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pivot a little bit here and a little bit kind of a team perspective, but kind of more broad too. I want to talk a little bit about the Grizzlies. Um, obviously, they have two of our guys down there and Tyus Jones, Luke Kennard. Uh, first, Tyus, I think, what was this, the fifth year in a row, sixth year in a row, or whatever it was, where he led yep. the league and assist uh, to turnover ratio. What do you think about him? I think you've kind of like went on record or talked about him as like the best kind of backup point guard in the league. Like, is this the perfect role for him in Memphis or do you see anything kind of else? Do you like that fit? It's very weird seeing Ja for Tyus on off splits and what the team looks like. Um, but he's kind of held up defensively a little bit too. So what do you like about Tyus and kind of, do you just see this being like, he's in the best spot. This is the way to maximize him as an NBA player um or, or where would you go differently so aside from just him just never turning the ball over yeah. subject to bad decisions i like that he's improved his three-point shooting the past two years and he was like for there's a stretch a long stretch of the year he was just incendiary from he was like hitting pull-up triples it was bizarre um and you're talking about his playing without jaw grizzlies won a lot of games when jaw doesn't play mm -hmm. in part because of how good tyus is and so while i do think he benefits a lot from some of the matchups going up against other second units like he's filled in as a starter. He's played against some really tough units. So do I think this is the, it might be the comfiest role for him, but I do mm, think that fair. this is someone who could absolutely lead a starting level offense. You probably want him to be a little bit more aggressive and looking for a shot. But again, I just feel like during Jaws suspension specifically, I felt like he was doing that a lot more. And so can you live with your point guard, like maybe punting on taking some wide open twos in the middle or not taking as many threes as you want and not really getting the foul line? It, it poses some problems, but I think that this is someone who can be more than just, you know, like your sixth best player. And so I would love to eventually see him somewhere where, especially if you could surround him with like more wide open spacing than Memphis had for a lot of this year. Uh, sure. I think that could help him out a ton as well. Yeah. What about, let's talk a little bit about Luke Kennard. So obviously Raul was a big like Ty Lue guy. I was of the opinion that kind of either Lue just hated Luke or like they had some bad chemistry. Taylor Jenkins seems to love the guy. I mean, he gets to Memphis, kind of has a little bit of a resurgence there after kind of falling, kind of like, you know, out of mention and, and uh, LA comes on shooting the ball really well. Um, is he going to kind of be a journeyman too? Do you think he found a home in Memphis there? What do you like about him again? bench role versus starter role where do you see kind of things going for luke yeah i think you know the grizzlies ability to get 
Kennard to just jack up more three pointers makes me wonder a little bit why couldn't the Clippers do it? <laughs> it was like he was taking two more three pointers per 36 minutes with with Memphis. I think they let him work on the ball a little bit more, dribble a little bit more, I should say, than LA did, which probably helped. Um, do I think he's like a starting caliber player in the vein of a Kevin Herter? Sure. And I think mm. in Memphis specifically, especially because they just decided to tell Dylan Brooks like two months before free agency <laughs> that they weren't gonna bring him back. You're so unbelievably short on like wing swingman type players. Um, as I use air quotes that your listeners won't see, you need <laughs> Luke Kennard a bunch at this point, not only because he helped their half court offense improved a great deal after he came over during the trade deadline. And it wasn't because of offensive rebounds. Steven Adams was injured at that point. A job missed that stretch. And so yep. his, his, the spacing he provides and the pressure he puts on defense is even before he has the ball in his hands, I think is big. And I, I do believe much like we kind of saw Kevin Herter show more in Sacramento. We could see something similar long, long-term with Kennard in Memphis. A lot of it though, probably does depend on like, well, what's the next move for them? Because they, so they're good enough to where they so clearly might need and have the assets to make more of an all-in trade. And so if you bring in a power wing, who's going to command more of a monopoly on the offense, maybe that knocks him down another peg. But I think even as more of a complimentary guy, uh, this is someone that I don't want to say if you part as Memphis's core, but if you had to pick between, oh, is Zaire Williams or Luke Kennard more likely to be there next season? It feels like Zaire, uh, it feels like Luke Kennard would be the answer. Even if you wanted to throw David Roddy into that, mm. it still feels like <laughs> Luke Kennard would be more likely to be there next season. He seems like a perfect fit with Ja, too, and just what Ja needs in that. A guy that doesn't need the ball, can really shoot, has like, you know, unlimited range. I love the herder comparison, not may, more so because of like the Ja to, um, to Fox and how they both kind of operate very up and down, very lightning fast, what they can do. And, and obviously, you know, Taylor Jenkins, Memphis, they're a modern NBA offense. They want to, they want to run. They want to get up a lot of threes that didn't go so well against the Lakers. Uh, they got up plenty, couldn't make any. So maybe a guy like Luke can, can help them out. Um, but you mentioned it. So I want to talk about it briefly, not a Duke player. Um, you just spoke about it in depth on a podcast. I think a couple of days ago, this Dylan Brooks thing is kind of wild. Obviously, Duke fans, we have a little bit of history dating back to 2016. Oregon blows Duke out. Dylan takes the kind of infamous last second heave, makes the shot. Kay kind of tells him, look, kid, you're better than this. Maybe not. You know, now there's Draymond <laughs> quotes from March that he's telling him, like, look, dude, the dynasty starts after you, not with you, which if that's a if that's an actual quote, that is cold blooded. <laughs> I love I love that. Um what happened here? I mean, he seems like a guy that was part of the culture, loved by everybody. Everyone's like, you need a dog, you need a Pat Bev, you need this type of dude. Now, basically ostracized. Like, what what, what happens to him? Like, is he going overseas? You think he lands somewhere? How did this fall apart? I, I'm curious to see if anything happened behind the scenes in Memphis, but publicly, I think he was one of the most damaging offensive players in the league. <laughs> yeah. Memphis just can't yeah. afford to have it on their roster. And then coupled with... Before they even told him they weren't going to resign him, he was kind of talking about in exit interviews how we know he's capable of more. If he wants a larger offensive role, there's no team that should be prepared to give him one. And so, like, I could understand that from Memphis's perspective. What was really odd when people were talking about, oh, is it because he he trash talked LeBron James and everything he said in the media about Draymond? Maybe, but like that is the entire identity of your team. Right. Ja does it. Desmond yeah. Bain does it. Like your entire team talks. Yep. And so I find it hard to believe that was the impetus for saying that that's where it all went wrong. It feels like either something happened behind the scenes or there was just this disconnect between what he views himself as on offense and what the Grizzlies actually believe him to be slash know he is slash need from him. I will say 
I don't want to say that they made him a scapegoat of the season. There was, it felt a little bit like that because of the language, like under no circumstances are they bringing him back. <laughs> yeah. I've never it heard is, that before. That's crazy. Yeah. It, that was wild. But I think the bigger, not the bigger problem, but the unequivocal problem here that we don't need to speculate on. This is terrible asset management by the Grizzlies. Mm. This is someone who is super important to your team. Now you've decided, unless there's some sign and trade scenarios we haven't considered, you're just going to let walk. Because to answer your overseas question, I would be flabbergasted if he's not in the NBA next yeah. year. There's a dearth of wings on the market today. He can, at least in theory, defend the other team's best player, even if that best player is LeBron James. And so if you think you can rein him in on offense and during interviews, perhaps, um, I think, I don't want to say easily, but maybe where if you thought he was going to get like 15 to 18 million before this season started, um, he's at least going to get mid-level money, like around yeah. that $12 million per year mark. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if somebody will bring him in on like a short, prove it deal kind of you know what i mean like we're gonna bring you in for two years see how you perform if he signs a deal that's unless it's super cheap but if he signs a deal that's more than two guaranteed years that's that might shock me at this point for sure that's a great point honestly he should just go play with lebron and the lakers like <laughs> I, I feel like that's kind of what he needs is a veteran like presence like memphis i think they were he's kind of the alpha dog a little bit just in terms of like seniority Maybe it would help him to go kind of like, hey, man, go be around some pros, be around some guys that have won it, that have done this thing before, fill a role, fit in, be a glorified Andrew Wiggins out there or something like that. Like, I don't know. Defensively, it makes so much sense because they can, as good as they've been on defense, they kind of need that premier wing defender, but right. there's just no pathway to him being no. good on offense there. They, no. They're facing as rickety as it is. Like Malik Beasley forgot how to shoot since he basically came to the Lakers. So um and can't even get playing time in a series where i thought they could really use him in game one against the warriors so that would be defensively yes i just can you could you look lebron in the eye after, i guess he did but like after all the stuff he said i just that would be that would be like you know patrick beverly and russell westbrook becoming teammates which did right. happen but i just I, I don't know that would be so bizarre yeah, that would be wild. Um, I'm sure uh, uh, my my pulling standards here in Charlotte uh, would be my luck that he would end up there just because we just seem to have awful luck. But that's funny. I didn't know you. I, I, I got some Hornets fans were a little bit mad on Twitter because I quote tweeted something Dylan Brooks said by saying, Dylan Brooks, you are now a Hornet. It just <laughs> felt like such a Hornets move. Yeah. And they're like, hey, it's we don't 100%. need more wings who can't shoot. And it was like, what makes you think that's going to stop the organization from looking at him? So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the Hornets are in a. Uh, a bad spot really i mean at some point it's like they probably need to do something or lamello is probably out of there i mean they they went through the coaching carousel was that last summer where all of us were like okay we're we got our guy we're gonna do this and then it's like oh clifford again mm, retread yeah i bet the rookie's gonna love that you know <laughs> it's like now we're just gonna purgatory for the play-in every year karmically their fans feel like they're the ones who deserve and someone dm'd me this this is an original thought i want to see victor Wembanyama somewhere else i think indy's actually my favorite fit for him but karmically for the fans not the organization that organization been terrible the fans the charlotte hornets fans probably deserve Wembanyama more than any other organization mm. do you think he could play with uh with mark williams i know i'm kind of transitioning to the next subject here but uh, that's a great segue actually because that is a good segue <laughs> i think he can and i think it's probably even better because like you have this primary big body who you know isn't going to be like, oh, we want everyone's like, can Victor play the five? And I'm like, how much time is Victor going to spend at the two is really what I'm thinking about at this point. So I right. absolutely <laughs> think he could play with Mark Williams. And it's it might even look it might even help because if you bring Mark Williams just being a little bit slower on defense, I thought his rim protection improved later in the year as his role got even bigger. 
but just as someone who's a little bit slower on defense, to have Victor Wembanyama sort of back line support if he gets pulled out, they actually might even complement each other really, really well on that end of the floor. It would be cool to see the Hornets good again, you know, just to see the it's it's fun to go to the games. It's obviously, you know, back in the 90s, it was just like really wild, but um, been on hard times lately, been on pretty hard times here. Yeah, I mean, um, they can't even, LaMelo just can't, like now you have to wonder about his ankles. Uh, and it's like, we're about to give this guy 200 plus million dollars this year, whatever it's going to end up being. And you have to, and he will sign it. But everyone has been concerned about Zion in New Orleans. And I've always just been like, Oh no, Melo and Charlotte, that feels like the situation that might go sour a lot. If we're talking about looking back on, wow, this person was still on their rookie scale and really tried to agitate for out. I never viewed it as Zion as much as like, I just feel like it could be LaBella. I just feel like yeah. it could be him. Yeah. And not to just make this a Hornets podcast, but it also seems too that like the smaller market teams that do well, you really have to build internally. You have to build in the draft. You have to accrue assets. And the Hornets are in this like, actually, we'll just wait for the contract after the contract and then sign the wash guy for the big money to come here. And it's like, okay, you know, here we go again. You know, I, I knew the Hayward thing. The minute it happened, I was like, yeah, you know, Rogier, great guy, great player, but where are you going? You know, right. like, where's the, where are you selling me on the vision here? At least the thunder. Now they're looking at this, like, okay, we could actually see something happen with yeah. all of this stuff. Charlotte, it's just, you know, it's selling us on the play in. And and even the stuff they do right, where it's, I respect that everyone wanted to trade and spend big on a big, and they never did. But it was like, okay, well, you used 80 draft picks to try and find said big. And like, you have Mark <laughs> Williams now, and if, you know, to bring this back to him, if like that mid-range jumper is for real, like, he's going to be a really good player. And just like, that'll provide an yeah. air, especially if you're going to, you know, surround him with at least three shooters in most lineups with when you have PJ Washington and Rozier and LaMelo and Hayward for the 37 games he's available every year or whatever it is. Um, you could like, that is, he is more fat. I thought I was going to be more fascinated by Kai Jones just because of his physical tools. Um, and I might still be more fascinated by JT Thor, who just feels like a, a human anomaly, but, <laughs> um, he has the chance to be really good. And I, I feel semi-confident in saying, unless you consider Wembenyama a big, that this will be the year the Hornets do not either trade or draft for a big on, on draft night. Oh, okay. All right. Well, well, they like their blue chippers now. You know, that seems like that's what we do. We watch the NCAA tournament and we take one of the blue bloods and um, <laughs> pray for the best. I mean, that's seriously, that's just our outcome there. Um, yeah, the last, yeah. MJ only wants guys from uh, Duke or Kentucky or Connecticut, somebody he saw, you know, two games up in the tournament. Malik but, Monk, Ryan Boatwright. I mean, we could, we yeah, could get yeah. kind of nasty here probably, but we'll, we'll refrain. That he sells that franchise within 48 hours if they draft Wimanyama, right? Because the yeah. value just skyrockets. At that <laughs> yeah, point. probably. Tickets yeah. alone, right? Yeah, even if they're not more successful, uh, people are just going to be buying tickets just to see him. Yeah, yeah that's like sure. immediate, like the day after the draft, we'll probably hear reports like Michael Jordan is in <laughs> you know, the ending stages of talks to sell the majority stake in the Charlotte Hornets. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, ever since 2012, man, we've just uh, maybe the mind thing didn't play out globally, but it surely played out for the Hornets. <laughs> you know, Anthony Davis should have been a Hornet, man. I'll, I'll, I'll die on that hill. We should have instead we got MKG. Always, they'll always have that series where they almost beat the heat. And I yep. remember I was watching there, yeah. that. <laughs> that was an incredible series to watch, but that completely messed with the entire trajectory of their franchise because they decided to double and triple and quadruple down on that yep. core for the most part. It just did not work. 
Yeah. Yeah. The good old Kimball Walker, Al Jefferson's and uh, yeah, good, good times. Good times. Um, last guy I want to ask you about, and then obviously Rolo, if you got anything, we, we mentioned it briefly. Um, so Trey Jones is a guy that like, obviously Duke fans beloved came back for that sophomore season, played with the infamous 2019 class with Zion and RJ and Cam Reddish and those guys um really kind of found his space here a little bit and said now obviously the spurs are not good um but he had a few triple doubles he actually looked kind of like a competent starting level guard here is does that track with you or is this just like hey they're just giving these guys plenty of time on a bad team to see what they have for asset purposes or do you think this goes anywhere I think it's still he's young enough and intriguing enough to where it still might go somewhere and you want to see him hit that pull up mid range jumper more consistently because that is his bread and butter. He did a really good job of hitting it in year two. I think it was, um, he's an excellent floor manager. He's gotten, he, I guess he was always good. But he's gotten even better at not picking up his dribble. He'll make a lot of simple passes, but he'll throw some of these wily pocket passes as well. If you put more offensive talent around him, like, do I think he could be, I'm not making the direct comparison, but sort of like a, a Mike Conley type where it's like, even that's the terrible comparison because Conley could really score and shoot it, but like someone who is managing your game and starting for you, but it's just not super high usage. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm trying to think of what would be a good, like what's the modern day example of that right now. But Those I think kind of gone away, right? Um, yeah. Where, know, where are the is, Derek Fishers of the world? You know, they're not around anymore. <laughs> um, ironically, it would be like a, maybe a less athletic, like DeJounte Murray type when you're looking at okay. his importance yeah. to right. um, what he, not, I guess he can't defend as, as well on, de- on the defensive end, of course, but when you're looking at the level of um, like sort of flip-flop those two, I think he's like a much better playmaker than Murray was, um, but he's not going to score as much. And so are you more comfortable with that if you surround him with all these primary scores slash secondary creators with Devin Vassell super high on. Uh, he would have been an MIP candidate if he played more this year. Keldon Johnson, we kind of know what he is, but like as someone who can put the floor on the deck, go north-south, and then hit catch-and-shoot threes, uh, I'm so high on Jeremy Sohan. It probably doesn't bode well for his career, actually. <laughs> but I think looking at the surrounding pieces, if multiple ones of them hit, I think he could be. And if you try and scale it to another situation, because he is a free agent too, which is also interesting this summer, I do think he could probably start, but if, you know, not to like really double dip into this pool, but I would bet on Tyus Jones being starting caliber for like a, you know, let's say 68 of 82 games more than I would try at this point. That's fair. That's fair. He's still got a few years under him too. So, yeah. I mean, Tyus is just a better shooter and he was a better shooter in college too. So I think for me, that's the big difference between them. They're both great at not turning the ball over, both heady players, but just the offense is a little bit more there with Tyus, I think. Yeah, when you look at how far defenses play off of Trey right now, it's like Golden State versus Sabonis in the first round levels yep. of we're just not going to respect your shot. We saw that in college, uh, Trey's first year, Zion was on that team, of course. And what killed them in the tournament, essentially, was that defenses were just straight up ignoring Trey. Oh, yeah. UCF had Taco Fall guarding Trey Jones yep. from the rim. Oh, wow. like, right. Just from the rim. <laughs> just like, come on, dude. And we he couldn't do it. And it, you know, we, we survived that game. But obviously, it kind of showed that, like, oh, we have some issues here. But I won't, we won't get into that. Cave was not, I don't think, at his best um, from a roster construction and just the way that whole team was built. But, you know, it's not the NBA. So he kind of get one shot at it here in college. But, uh, Dan, I know you're not a huge draft guy. Do you know anything about the current kind of crop coming out, the Derek Liveleys, the Derek Whiteheads? Do you have any kind of thoughts on, on where that might trend? Or, or I don't know how much you follow that stuff yet until they actually start to do something. 
Yeah, I know about it now because Raul hit me up beforehand, so I did some cursory <laughs> research on it. Uh, I think, look, I, I, I'm actually kind of intrigued by Whitehead from now what I understand about him, where it's like he does this one skill that he does really well, mm-hmm. and we'll see how he rebounds from injuries or if he can give you anything defensively or like at different levels on offense. But that feels like someone who, if you put him on like, when you look at some of these uh, back-end first-round teams, like if you put him in a Miami um, who could desperately use someone like his skill set, if you put him in, I don't know, it would be like a good, another team, Memphis even, who really likes to invest in their young guys, Anyway, maybe if you put him in Utah, although they skew so far offense first, and we know the Clippers won't, they have number 30, they won't, you know, unearth a rookie for for years. I would be so intrigued by him. But I do think that Lively is clearly just like the the easier bet and easier fit, where it's like when you look at where he's mocked, it's is there just like a chance he ends up in Dallas, which probably I, you know, RIP to his trajectory if he stays there unless they they move him. But a team that could just use sort of a rim running and also like paint protector. If we talk a lot about unicorns or whatever at the center position, it's really turned into most of the time more of a specialty position. And it would be nice if you can make decisions as a passer when you're catching the ball. It's nice if you have an emergency post up and it's really nice if you can stretch the floor. But if you can just rim run efficiently and block shots, like you can have a spot in an NBA rotation and carve out a fairly long career. And so he clearly feels like the better bet. But after doing my own research, I guess, as they would say, like I'm kind of more intrigued by Whitehead, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. If you watch Whitehead's uh, high school highlights, he looks like a completely different player. You know, he even came in with the rep of like, he can, he can hit shots, but he's not this elite shooter. And then in college, he becomes this kind of elite shooter, but with the injury, the athleticism had kind of gone away. It, it really, we've made the comparison a lot on the podcast, but it's very similar to what we saw out of AJ Griffin in college where he was just hampered by injuries and you only saw kind of a shadow of the player, but the shot was still there. Um, now, AJ, though, it does seem like I didn't I admit I didn't watch a lot of Hawks this year. So maybe get your impression on this, but it seems like he has maybe a little bit more off the dribble juice. Like he's not just a pure shooter, which so this is my draft and you were speaking. I just didn't know that he would have that coming in. And so then watching him run like DHOs with Onyeka Kongwu or seeing yeah. him like go into like floaters or just being able to put the ball on the deck and turn corners in addition to not just his standstill shooting, but his motion shooting. If that's like something Whitehead can like even one of those things, like additionally that he can do um, because that just completely and granted, he didn't play a huge part in their short playoff push, but like Griffin was a prominent part of the rotation for a pretty big chunk this season it was probably like for a while. One of the Hawks's only bright spots. And I just didn't understand the level of and not even just like on ball stuff, but just like the, the, what he could do inside the arc. There's just not something that I was expecting. And so it adds um, that layer of diversification to his game. And uh, I don't know enough about Whitehead. I didn't watch any of his high school footage to see if that's something that he would have been able to do. But if you put him in a situation, maybe that has the spacing necessary or the, like the bigs to help facilitate that type of type of role, may, maybe it would be um, like something that he could grow into because Griffin did it basically right away. It was like by what, like December or January of this right, year, yeah. he was just doing those yeah. things. Yeah. The one thing I like about Whitehead is that he's shown an ability to be very efficient, catch and shoot and creating his own three. So like he really had that step back three this year, a little bit going. Um, obviously that could potentially translate. So we'll see. 
Uh, Dan, I think we might have uh, buried the lead here a little bit. So we've had you on for an hour and I want to get you out of here, but we got to talk a little bit about the Pelicans, right? I mean, we're talking about Duke in the NBA. We got Brandon Ingram, we got Zion. I know that the Pelicans have kind of fell off the radar after being number one in the Western Conference through like the first month and a half of the season. That seems like forever ago. Are you still in on this Zion experience? Do you think that him and Brandon Ingram can coexist? Is Ingram going to ever be this like all NBA guy that can carry a team? What do we do with this mess in New Orleans down here? I think just because there are receipts in Discord and YouTube and Twitter of me just being incandescently high on the Pelicans that I will stay. <laughs> so, but I think it just comes down to availability with them. And I do now think they need to do a better job of building their roster in the image of hey, we're not going to have 55 combined appearances from Brandon Ingram and Zion Williams. Yes. Like they're going to play in like 25 games together or something. Um, and so it's tough to, because I don't even think the roster is built to optimize them right now. No. And so now you need to do a better job of that while also juggling the fact that they're not going to be fully available. I would love to see, because if you just assume they're going to be on a court and on the court at all together, and Raul knows how I feel about this because I've had just many conversations about Discord, change up the center position for the love of God, especially yep. <laughs> if you're just not going to play Jonas Valanciunas, who's a good player, not the cleanest fit, but also just like under criminally underutilized, you could even say. And I would love for them to shake it up there. But I also kind of think that what would also help Ingram and Zion, both when they're playing and would help the Pelicans when they're not, they need caps lock, bold text, italics shooters there. And CJ McCollum has done a great job, I think, of upping his three-point volume. He provides no rim pressure, kind of like what Brandon Ingram does. And his three-pointers are not like abrupt. They're not coming off the ball, him flying around screens. They need like a the idea of Malik Beasley, because not who Malik Beasley is right now, or like the idea of Gary Trent Jr. They need someone like that. And if you're not going to go that route, then you need to get another ball handler aside from Zion who's going to put any pressure whatsoever on the rim. And maybe you have that in Kyra Lewis, but I just struggled to see if they're ever going to give him a, a chance at playing time, real playing time anyway. Yeah. Seems like right. they need another uh, another Trey Murphy. Like you need to clone him or something. I was just going to say, so how long till this is Trey Murphy's team, right? <laughs> That's the real question here, maybe. <laughs> and they run into like a weird issue where I don't think it's a problem now, but I got crucified for suggesting that you, I would trade, I would do it right now. I would trade Herb Jones for Miles Turner and not think twice about it. I would yeah. do <laughs> Jonas and Herb for... Um, Jonas Valanciunas and I think or excuse me for Miles Turner I don't know if the Pacers would do that but just like because you have Trey Murphy because you have Dyson Daniels because you have Brandon Aaron, like you have so many non-point guard perimeter players right now in addition to what we know Zion is you almost have I'm not saying you need to get rid of someone but you have the ability to do the trade that no one ever wants to make which is wing for bigs and I know yeah. Herb started hitting threes towards the end of the year he was he was taking like one a game like we just saw in the playoffs. I think Isaac Okor is a great example. I know he was dealing with an injury, but he hit his threes for a large part of the regular season. The Knicks did not care. They did not care. And that's going to happen in the playoffs. And I think that it could diminish his value to the Pelicans within their, their current setup. I do say all this knowing when we talk about like, you know, upgrading the center position, the names that are mentioned are like miles Turner, Brooke Lopez, and that's pretty much it because there's yep. really like three or four guys that actually do all the things you want a center to do next to Zion. And it's those two plus it's not even Carl Anthony Towns who doesn't protect the rim. It's Christoph Porzingis like every third year 
basically. Yep. <laughs> so that is also the other challenge that you have to, to have to I know. It's so hard to find the per it's like I want Zion and like Jaron Jackson Jr. front court or like Zion yeah. Jokic front court. Like that's what <laughs> I want, right? And it's like other than that, it's hard to find good fits. <laughs> the Zion Jokic front court. I mean, Would maybe Zion is like phenomenal. a if you trust his help defense, like that is gonna give up so many points again. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I think but the theory of that one is they uh have the best offense in NBA history, and yeah. that's the trade off, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, or you just don't expect them to play that much time together. Right, exactly. So yeah, you you, yeah, you have a, a, a rim-protecting four in there for when yeah. Zion's out. Zion Jokic just take turns like screening for each other in the pick and roll and just seeing what can happen out of that. Um, yeah, that would be crazy. But, uh, well, I know we've, we've went kind of long here, Dan, so we really appreciate it. Um, as we get ready to kind of wind down, plug anything you got going on, let the people know where they can find you. Obviously we're going to put the links to hardwood knocks and everything in the description, but anything that's coming out that, that the people should be on the look for. Uh, I will have constant content coming out at Bleacher report. So you can check there. Just follow me on Twitter at my name at Dan Valley for that. Uh, and I'll just reiterate, if you like really um, sub mediocre NBA wide analysis, check out the hardwood knocks podcast spelled exactly as it sounds and available wherever you get your podcast. Very nice. And are you also going to do like the, uh, what was it, a couple of years ago, you were, or maybe every year you do like the team by team, like off season, like breakdowns, where you really kind of get like one-on-ones. Is that still coming in the works or? I think that's something I will still aim to do this season. I had a last minute cancellation on the Clippers and never, and it was just like right before the regular season. So they actually, I owe the Clippers a look ahead, but <laughs> those are one of my favorite things to do to prep for the season. They're also some of the most least successful podcasts that we, we have because they're I'm doing who want, who honestly wants, I did 85 minutes on the Hornets this past <laughs> year. And it's very instructive for me, but the audience is just so narrow that we, there is the push to not do it that way. But I do have a feeling that, yeah, we'll be doing the look aheads over the off season once, uh, you know, draft and free agency are over. Yeah. Well, but for the three one people, appreciated the Hornets one. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say for the three people who listen to that, they're going to love it. Like it's yeah. where else can they get an 85 minute Hornets podcast? We, right. I will say I appreciate it. Harvard Knox is not the biggest NBA podcast. We got some real sickos who will just yeah. like be in discord and be like, so I was listening to that, like 95 minute preview on the Spurs that you did. And I have this question about Zach Collins or, or Trey Jones. And so I appreciate our discord members are just so great. And um, like the numbers on the episodes are at least good enough in my head to where I can justify continuing to like burn so much time on. Hey, like we need to do this deep dive on uh, you know, of what what other team can I poke fun at at this point? Um, <laughs> yeah, the Rockets. Know. Yeah, the Rockets. We just yeah, I just did an off season one on on the Rockets. So um, yeah, they're they're yeah. fun pods though. Yeah, yeah, I always appreciate those. Um, well, again, Dan, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, we everybody go check that out. The Hardwood Knocks. We got a few guys over here that are some NBA fans. So obviously, we have a ton of Duke guys in the league. It's a great time to check that out. Just full disclosure, we're recording this on Wednesday night, uh, so some of this stuff might be a little dated, but we didn't really go jump into it too much. Um, I think the Celtics are up by like fifty right now on the on the Philly. So looks like that's Justin Champagne minutes. Champagne. Yeah. I can't even pronounce his name because I never <laughs> see him play. Champagne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, again, Dan, we really appreciate that. Um, hopefully we can, we can have a little bit more to talk about in the off season, the drafts coming up. So that'll be here in a few months and uh, see where some of these guys land and, and what their careers are going to look like. But uh, in the meantime, you can rate, review, subscribe. You can find us on the boards at thedevilsden.com. You can find us on Twitter at devilsdenpod247. And uh, keep the faces strong and the burp high. Go do. Go do.